Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. This will be our New Testament reading, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. Yet again, hammering, hammering away on the same great theme of the book of Jonah. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's turn now to Jonah. Starting with the very last verse of chapter 1. After those major prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Just a few pages before Matthew. Okay. Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. 
But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. You may be seated. I've told some of you about one of my favorite passages in the Chronicles of Narnia in the second book, Prince Caspian, uh, where there's the, the dwarf named Trumpkin who, uh, he doesn't believe Aslan exists. Um, he's a skeptic. That's what he is. Uh, one day, uh, he comes face-to-face with Aslan for the very first time, and even though he's absolutely terrified, Lewis says he did the only sensible thing he could have done. That is, instead of bolting, he tottered towards Aslan. And I love the next line. It says, Aslan pounced. And he says, have you ever seen a, a very young kitten being carried in the mother cat's mouth? It was like that, with, with Trumpkin kind of hanging from Aslan's mouth, and Aslan gets a little shake and then tosses him up in the air and catch him, catches him in his paws. Says he was he was as safe as if he had been in bed, though he did not feel so. As he came down, the huge velvety paws caught him as gently as a mother's arms and set him right way up too on the ground. Always loved that scene. I love the contrast there between the way that Trumpkin feels and how safe he actually is. How humbling that experience is for him as he realizes just how wrong he has been. How he's brought to feel his smallness, his his weakness, his total vulnerability and dependence, his desperate need and helplessness. And yet, by that very experience, he learns something also of the power, the security, the unshakable confidence that he can now have under the protection of this very real, very present, very dangerous, and very good being who has got him in his strong jaws and paws. And I also think that is not a bad illustration of Jonah's experience in this storm, in the sea, and in the belly of this great fish who saves him by swallowing him. Let's look at this uh, whole passage, including the rescue and Jonah's prayer afterwards in three parts this morning. First is going to be a supernatural solution, uh, up through chapter 2, verse 1. Second will be a sinking soul verse 2 through the beginning of verse 6, and then third, a sovereign savior to the end of the chapter. So a supernatural solution, a sinking soul, and a sovereign savior. Now, because we know um, the end of this story, we've heard it many times, um, it's possible for us to kind of overlook a very important point of the plot which is that Jonah didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, in fact, nobody knew what was going to happen here with this 
great fish. When Jonah offered to be thrown overboard, um, he had every reason to believe that that was the end, that that meant for him certain death, not just probably, definitely. You get thrown overboard in the middle of a storm at sea of this magnitude, you are going to die. There's just no other outcome. Every indication in verse 15 is that Jonah is offering to pay the ultimate price for his high-handed disobedience against God. Verse 17, then, comes truly out of the blue. If you had never heard this story before, which is hard to imagine, many of you have heard it since you were small children, but if you never had heard this story before, you never would see this coming, right? Um, when we read it, we're, we're, we're kind of looking for this fish. We're waiting. We're excited for the fish to show up. We're expecting it. But if you didn't know that part of the story, you read, they picked Jonah up, they hurled him into the sea, and then you fill in the blank. Of all the things that might have happened next, what actually does happen is completely out of left field. And that is an important aspect of this narrative. You, you can imagine... Uh, non-Christian skeptic kind of pointing to Jonah and saying, you, you Christians, you're so credulous. You're so gullible. You just read this and you accept it like it's normal. Oh yeah, a big fish came along and swallowed this guy and he survived inside of her three days. That, that just doesn't happen. You guys are crazy. And the first thing we've got to get clear in response to that is, is that no, we don't accept that as something normal. Right? As though this is something that just happens in the ordinary course of things, as though it was natural. So the, the author here is very self-aware about just how outlandish, just how offbeat and startling this plot twist is. That it is an act of absolute creativity and originality on the part of God to do something that nobody saw coming, something supernatural. This should caution us, by the way, against really some very silly and, and frankly, very thin ways of defending the historicity of this account, the historical truthfulness of it. Uh, people over the years have tried to search for kind of um, like anecdotes from sailors um, who have recounted different stories about people being swallowed by whales and whatnot, searching and searching for proof that, yes, maybe this really is possible after all in the natural course of things. That, that maybe it's happened to someone else or other in the course of ordinary life at sea. Trying to find parallel examples of people surviving in the bellies of fish. But you see, that is, that's precisely the wrong way to understand much less to defend the truth of this text and its historical truthfulness. The, the book of Jonah presents the, ver, the events of verse 17 as a distinctly supernatural intrusion of God's saving sovereign power to interrupt the ordinary course of nature. That's the whole point here. The ordinary course of nature would be Jonah drowning and dying, right? And the Lord is intruding supernaturally from above to bring about a different outcome that would not be repeatable. We shouldn't expect to be repeatable in the natural course of ordinary life at sea. And so it's not really helpful either to attack or defend 
the historicity of this event, event on the basis of what usually happens with people and storms and fish. The whole point is that this is an epic, momentous in-breaking of God's saving power. When Jonah was not just in trouble, it was when Jonah was past all hope of survival. For the Lord to do for Jonah supernaturally what naturally was absolutely past hope. So with that in mind, we should then look at the, the very delicious irony of the manner in which God saves Jonah. Once you come to terms with this idea of, of a supernatural deliverance, something outside the ordinary course of things, well then you could think, well, there are all kinds of ways that the Lord might have done this. This opens up a whole field of possibilities. Um, uh, why not have a great bird sweep down and uh, pick Jonah up in his talons and carry him soaring up into the clouds to safety? Um, why not have a, a, a dolphin come along and carry Jonah on his back and Jonah could ride along on the dolphin's back to, to the shore? We can imagine all kinds. The point I know that's a little bit silly, but you can imagine all kinds of much more respectable ways for the Lord to have saved Jonah supernaturally from the sea. Ways that would have been much more pleasant, even glorious and triumphant for him to rise from the depths and be, you know, escorted back to the shore as the great servant of the Lord. But no, Jonah, how are you going to be rescued? What is this rescue, this supernatural inbreaking of the sovereign saving power of God going to look like for you, Jonah? You're going to be saved by getting eaten, by being swallowed. So at first, it really seems like, you know, out of, the fi- out of the frying pan and into the fire. Rescued from drowning, but now I've been swallowed by a fish. And again, that is not an accident. The Lord, in doing this, historically, and the inspired author in recording it, both are very self-aware about that, that paradox. Salvation by swallowing. Escape by being eaten. Rescue by regurgitation. <laughs> right? Because what it all amounts to is really deliverance through death. Deliverance through death. The Lord is giving Jonah, he's giving us the, the richest possible expression of the depths of his helplessness apart from God and and of the lengths to which God is willing to go to rescue him and to restore him to his service. Growing up, I had a cassette tape of the Christian singer-songwriter Wes King. I don't know if any of you guys like Wes King, but I was thinking of one of his songs with the refrain, Who But God. Who But God would do something like this. Right? Not only who but God could do something like this. The question is, who but God would come up with an idea like this to choose this very paradoxical way of rescuing his servant to teach both him and us both his desperate need and helplessness and also the power, the security, 
the unshakable confidence he can now have under the protection of this very real, very present, very dangerous, and very good being who has got him safe in his hands. Then, verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. You might ask, do you think that Jonah prayed um, these exact words at that particular moment? Um, I wonder if that's what the Holy Spirit is intending to communicate to us here. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, Since it's an inspired prayer, uh, the Lord is more than able to inspire his prophet to pray in just these words under whatever circumstances, however unusual, and then write it down later. Um, I'm a little more inclined to think of this prayer um, the way we think about some of the Psalms. Um, So when the Psalms in the heading say that David was in the cave hiding from Saul, are we to think that David was praying in this exalted poetic language in the cave? Maybe, maybe, although I don't think that the Psalms are requiring us to think of it in precisely those terms. Um, it's, it's, it's possible that it's, it's teaching us to see that David prayed along those general lines with the, that general disposition, and then later, reflecting on that experience, wrote down and crafted those prayers in a more artistic, poetic manner that was consistent with what he was crying out to God, maybe in a less polished, less literary manner, um, kind of in the moment. Um, So again, the Lord is sovereign. He is inspiring this. He could do that even in an unusual moment. But I I think we could think of something similar going on here. This is a poetic uh, uh, re-expression of the heart cry of Jonah from the belly of this whale, of of this great fish, I mean. Um, At any rate, however we take that, we want to look at this uh, really psalm. This is a psalm-like form, the way that Jonah is praying here. We want to look at this form that the Lord has given to us of Jonah's prayer, um, uh, which he has given to us to read, to think about, and even to pray ourselves when we find ourselves calling out to God, uh, de profundis, if you know that phrase, out of the depths, which is the way that Psalm 130 begins, right? Uh, Out of the depths, um, from the depths of woe. Um, We can also see here echoes of Psalm 46. In verse 3, you see the heart of the seas. That's a phrase from Psalm Psalm 46. Even when the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Um, You can see an echo of Psalm 42 as well. when it says, all your waves and billows passed over me. This is very similar to Psalm 42, verse 7. In fact, at least one writer points this out. That Jonah is giving us here a, a great example of what it looks like to pray using the words and the imagery of the Psalms but applying them to our own specific situation, our own particular circumstances. Jonah is letting his prayer be shaped and colored by the images and the vocabulary of the word of God in the Psalms. Um, Jonah, it seems, had learned from the Psalms how to pray. That's exactly what we talk about when we study the Psalms, right? How can this teach us to pray? Well, here's a man who has learned how to pray from the Psalms. They teach us how to think. They teach us how to feel in the midst of the joys and sorrows of our life with God. And they give us the words and the pictures to express those things. And it's beautiful to see those words and images of the Psalms coming up in this Psalm of Jonah. I've called the second point a sinking soul. Now you notice how from verses 23 through the first half of verse 6, 
um, the direction is mostly downward. Um, there are some expressions of hope, but in general it's directed downwards, almost as though you can visualize Jonah sinking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper under the water. Um, one of the fascinating things about this is how Jonah associates sinking in the sea with sinking into Sheol, which is the Hebrew term for the grave or the place of the dead. Um, and this is a, another place where we encounter another one of the great paradoxes of um, Jonah's history. So first of all, on the one hand, by sinking into the sea and thereby sinking into the place of the dead, Jonah is in a sense getting exactly what he wished for at the beginning of the book. In chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. His goal was to get as far away from God as possible. Now, obviously, that was absurd. We've talked about this. You can't get away from an omnipresent God. But you see, Jonah had allowed himself to indulge in a very different conception of what God is like. To imagine God as the kind of God you can get away from. A local, limited God, like the gods of the Canaanites around him. Now, if God were really like that, if that was the case, well then Sheol, the place of the dead, that would be the place to go, the ultimate place to get away from that kind of God. This is something uh, T. Desmond Alexander brings out. He says, quote, having attempted earlier to flee to Tarshish from God's presence, he now finds himself destined for Sheol where he will be permanently isolated from God. Unquote. So you see how on the one hand, Jonah's getting exactly what he wanted. And yet... And yet, here's the thing, that's not what God is actually like, right? Remember Psalm 139, it specifically says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. God is present even in Sheol. For that matter, extending this kind of New Testament thinking, further revelation on this topic, for that matter, God is present even in hell. It's something sometimes people get wrong. Uh, they'll say that hell is the absence of God. That's not true. To be in hell is not for God to be totally absent. In fact, that's, that's exactly what a lot of people want. They just want God to leave them alone. But no such luck, because to be in hell means to experience the awful presence of God in his wrath in his perfect holy wrath against sin, which is a devastating thought, that God is there, inescapably there. But in Jonah's case, witness how that apparently bad news, oh, he hasn't been able to get away from God after all, has been turned upside down, or maybe we could say it's been turned right side up. Because now, that reality that God is there, even in Sheol, even in the depths of the sea, is what guarantees Jonah's rescue. That Jonah is going to be heard, and that Jonah is going to be brought up again from the depths. It's Jonah's great hope now that he has not been able to get away from God. That God's mercy has, has chased him down and has caught him. So that as the waters were closing in over him, and the deep was surrounding him, and the seaweed was 
wrapping around his head. Oh, that's such a vivid picture. I love that verse. The weeds were wrapped around my head. But what happened in that moment from the depths? God heard his voice. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. You see how the, the belly of the fish represents death in Jonah's mind here. But it also represents his rescue. Because that is the way, that is the place that God had planned to save his life, to hear his prayer. Yet, and this is the great turning point there in verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And now the trajectory kind of rockets upward, right? If we were going sinking down before, now we're moving up. Um, First, you see Jonah's thoughts turn upward. I remembered the Lord. And then Jonah's prayer goes up. Uh, My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah's down here in the depths, and yet his prayer is making it all the way to the Lord's holy temple. And finally, Jonah himself is going to go upward. Out of the sea, up out of the place of the dead, back to the land of the living. And he ends this prayer, this psalm, with this confidence that I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will get the opportunity to sacrifice to God again, to pay what I vowed. See, the Lord is going to save his life. And the blessed outcome of that rescue is going to be that Jonah is going to be able to worship God again. He's going to be able to worship God again. This failed, delinquent servant of the Lord is thrilled. I'm going to be able to come into his presence once more. Such an echo here, I think, of David's longing to get back to the temple when he's been cut off from it for a time in his journeys and think about that orientation of the hearts of these servants of God, that orientation that we ought to be seeking to cultivate in our own hearts so that during times of joy and during times of sorrow, uh, during the times of success or failure and, and desolate darkness that sometimes comes on us in life, that we should be looking for the Lord to draw us up, to bring us back, where? To bring us back, not just to our personal happiness and sense of well-being, but to bring us back into his presence. To bring us back again, well, to where we are right now. No matter what's happened in the week, we can know, but I get to worship God again. That doesn't change. He keeps welcoming me into his presence. He hasn't forgotten me. He's not absent. He's very present. He's promised his presence with me when I gather with his people and worship. And even though it may feel like I'm being swallowed alive by the circumstances of my life, I trust that that is just the form. It's just the form that his plan of salvation for me is taking in my life at this particular moment. And I trust him. And I'm going to worship him for it. I referenced that West King song earlier, Who But God. Uh, the song's not actually about Jonah. It's a song about Jesus. And it says, Who but God would send his son to condescend. That means to come down. Jesus coming down into the depths condescend to make himself the likes of a mere mortal man. Only God, he says, would condescend for us and choose the weakness of the cross, who wept the tears that conquered sin that we might laugh with him. Who but he who knew no sin 
would make himself the very thing he knew he could not look upon. Endure the cross and scorn its shame and choose the very weak things of this world to overcome the strong. Who but God? Who but God? Who but God? Who but God would write this story? Who but God would write that story of the Lord Jesus entering into the belly of Sheol for us? Driven away from the holy sight of God as he hung on the cross, bearing the curse of our sin and the waters, the bars of death closing upon him. Descending into the pit, the tomb, for three days. And yet the grave of Jesus, like the belly of this fish, was God's pathway. To salvation, deliverance through death. And God brought his life too up from the pit. God the Father heard the cries of Jesus from the cross, like the cries of Jonah from the sea, and he answered him in power from on high, a supernatural deliverance completely against the ordinary course of nature making death run backwards. Borrow from Lewis again. And you see, that is why it is in Christ that this prayer, this song of Jonah can become your prayer, can become your song. Because who but God, after all, would have written the story of your life just the particular way that it has gone in all of its joys and all of its sorrows. I want you to remember... Beloved, that you are still in the middle of that, that story of your life. And that what feels to you today like death itself, what feels to you like the pit, may in fact be the very means that the Lord has appointed to rescue and restore you, to bring you, to bring you to the place that He has planned for you to be in. To, and this is really important, to prepare you to be able to help others in the midst of their weakness and need. This is something Sinclair Ferguson points out so beautifully about Jonah here. Ferguson says, before all of this happened, Jonah, in his heart, was sitting in judgment over Nineveh. But now, he says, Jonah finds himself much more sitting beside the people of Nineveh, under the judgment of God and in need of the grace of God. Now, he reminds us, it was Jonah who needed grace. Look at the parallel between Jonah and those pagan sailors. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Chapter 1, verse 16. Jonah's great hope in verse 9 is that he will get to do just exactly the same thing those sailors did. They share the same need the same sinfulness, and they need the same Savior God. The Lord is teaching Jonah through the sea, through the belly of the fish, to see himself that way as a sinner among other sinners, all in desperate need of the grace of God. And He's preparing Jonah then, Ferguson says. He's preparing and fitting him for his ministry to Nineveh. And we'll find Jonah has not completely learned that lesson even still. Yet, 
We might hope he is beginning to. And it may be that through the darkness of your life at times that the Lord is doing the same thing with you. That it's, that it's not just about you. It's about how through you and even through your suffering, the Lord is preparing you to be his instrument of goodness and grace in the life of someone else. And you may not know that. You may never know in this life why. Why the Lord is taking you on this particular path. Why he's taking you through the belly of the fish and the depths of the sea when you feel like you're just being swallowed up. But you can know. You can know, people of God, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And you can know that whatever the reason for the particular path that you're walking, you know the sovereign Savior. Salvation belongs to him. And even as he brings you to feel your desperate need and helplessness, he is also bringing you in Christ to experience the power, the security, and the unshakable confidence that you can have under the protection of this very real, very present, very dangerous, and very good God who has got you safe in his hands all the time. Salvation belongs to him. So let's pray. Our God, we praise you because salvation belongs to you. And Lord, Some here today are feeling in the belly of death, in the depths of the sea. And Lord, together with one heart, we cry out to you and ask that you would hear us. And we trust you that you do. You will answer us in power, not because we deserve it, but because, Lord, you have already answered the Lord Jesus, raised him from the depths. You've seated us with him in the heavenly places. Give us courage, we pray. Give us patience. Help us to endure. Give us this heavenly perspective. Help us to trust, even from the depths, that salvation belongs to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.